I'm Mitch Owens, and welcome to the ADS Theatre. Jane Reitzman, who died last year at age 99, rocketed to international prominence from Midwestern obscurity. A beautiful woman who married well, dressed with elegance, and more important, was a high school graduate who transformed herself into one of the world's most distinguished collectors and philanthropists. Energetic, determined, and quietly savvy, she and her oil magnet husband reached out to experts in French and English decorative arts as they decorated important residences and helped fund, among other institutions, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Christie's experts, William Stafford and Alan Wintermute, join me in talking about the Reitzman Estate Auction that takes place later this month and what its treasures say about the woman they knew as well as her place in the pantheon of American connoisseurship. I hope you enjoy the show. What I find really fascinating about Jane Reitzman, let's just say the Reitzmans, Jane and her husband, Charles, I love what I think this sale says to me, this forthcoming auction says to me, is it gives you a lot of hope as a person who might be someone interested in, in, in collecting to realize that they really taught themselves with the help of experts, but they just sort of jumped in feet first. Yes, I think, I think in fairness, she more than he. Mm. And also I think in fairness with a lot of help from experts, but yes, I mean, absolutely. She was, I think a very, had a very receptive mind and personality and they were smart. And and in this case, he he too, I think were very smart about and perceptive about who the, for them really useful experts would be. They really followed expert opinion, but then developed very much working with these people, developed their own, uh, in her case, certainly her own expertise. And it was very quick. I know that I think for me, getting an insight into the Reitzmans and their collecting uh, evolution is from John Walker's essay in one of the Reitzman catalogs, those five uh, books, which are yeah. available online. You can download the PDF and read these five extraordinary catalogs of their collection that were uh, began to be published in 1966, which was really only about 14 years after they started collecting. And they had this immense collection of really first-rate furniture, silver, china paintings. I think one of the most telling moments that, that John Walker points out is that Charles Reitzman had already started uh, buying European porcelains only to discover what he had wasn't especially good. And when he realized that, he determined that Judge Samuel Untermeyer had the, one of the most important collections in America. So he went to meet him. What should I be buying? Why is what I bought no good? And I, I, I like that sort of, I guess you could say, straightforward Oklahoma businessman honesty why did I do incorrect? What, what, what did I do that was incorrect? 
absolutely. And they, 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 it was just a sort of single-minded determination to pursue the best. And, and as you say, to pursue the best advice, uh, to, to think in, in the French furniture field, their advisors in their early years were two of the legends of the 20th century in that field, Pierre Verlet in Paris, who, who really... The decorative arts curator of the Louvre. Yeah, revolutionized the study in, in royal furniture and sort of saved so much royal furniture for France. And Francis Watson um, of the Wallace Collection. So there was a very sort of, you feel there was a conscious, almost sort of picking out who were the best people to speak to in terms of academic advisors. And also fascinatingly in terms of advisors, in terms of broader uh, ideas of taste and and how to live so that you feel that there was a sort of series of mentors who were very quickly sort of no longer necessary but they sort of gave them gave them the platform so Mona Williams the great fashion plate and and style guru and uh, having bought her house in Palm Beach Baron René de Becker right they, uh, her apartment in the 25th, Thelma Chrysler Foy, who was the sort of the Queen of New York, I suppose, before Mrs. Reitzman. So all these influences were, were they absorbed their influence so quickly and, and in many ways sort of overcame them all in terms of the, the, the fashion influences mm. and the taste. And they were, and I think they were, again partly through this this influence but i think they understood that in certain areas like 18th century french decorative arts and and even paintings you could still get very very great things in a way that was i think more difficult with with what was maybe still the more fashionable english furniture of the period in 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 regard to what mitch was saying i think what one of the things i do admire about them because you know, we work for Christie's, so we see obviously the rich and grand collectors all the time. What I admire about them is that they have the the smarts to actually listen to the the great expertise they received. I mean, there there was no sense with Charles Reitzman, even though he was, uh, you know, he ran Standard Oil. There was no sense that he knew better than anyone, and I have to say that's often a rare quality. Well, it's really refreshing that they. Yeah that they went into it as yeah. students yeah. of design and knowing that they, being aware that they didn't really know anything. Right. But wanted to. Right. As you know, being aware that you don't know anything when you are a very powerful person in other areas of life is a, a, a rare gift. They started, I mean, as, as John Walker talks about in his essay in the, I think the fourth Reitzman catalog um, talks about meeting them in 1951 in Venice. They'd been married about five or six years yeah. by that point. She was in her late twenties, maybe, yeah. maybe 30. And that's an, an, an age that so many people are still forming who they are. You know, they haven't figured out anything really in terms of what they like and what they don't like. And to be this sort of young, eager woman to decide to immerse herself in what an older generation is collecting and to enter it in a way that 
that ended up making her not only an expert, but an eternal student. Absolutely. And you also feel from a very early start that, that, that they had a long-term plan for their collecting and, and the, the incredibly strong bonds they formed with the Metropolitan Museum obviously is, is legendary. Uh, but you feel at very early stage they really had a plan that their collecting was going to be for the greater good of the Metropolitan Museum. And, and, and perhaps to, to some extent her and his, their, their willingness to learn and, and the, the fact that they were so avid students, they wanted to pass that on as well to, 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 to educate New York and, and the world through the Metropolitan Museum. The fact that you hear these, you read about the dialogues between him and the Met at a very early stage in terms of this, this you will be getting this in, mm -hmm. in, in the future and the plans buying the panelled rooms in the 50s, which were not installed until the end of the 60s. Uh, it, it was a real sort of dedication. And, and, and I think the sale represents 40 or 50 years of her collecting and 40 or 50 years, obviously, of her incredible patronage. Well, Ted Russo, who was, you know, at the time, I think that the Reitzmans first get involved with the Met, was the curator of European art, but, but then eventually became the director of the Met. He is, in a way, the hero, because within two or three years of, of encountering him and sort of making their first forays through the Met, the Reitzmans are virtually the most committed patrons of the museum. I mean, literally, within two or three yeah. years of setting foot in the museum. So that, that's a, a sort of, an, as you say, an amazing commitment that happens very fast. And by the later 50s, they are very consciously buying for the Met. I mean, even, even things that they will keep in their own home for years are bought with the eye toward them eventually being at the Met. Mm. And all and, of this collecting, and, 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 and we, we can't leave this out at all, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a collector with a calculated reason for collecting. But just like any uh, couple or, or single collector in, during the Gilded Age, it shaped them into a certain to a, a personage. They suddenly had a position mm. in American society, in American connoisseurship, that well, it, it put them on the map in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it defined them. It gave them a position in, in society as collectors, not just people collecting trophies, right. but people who, it, it looks to me very early on, and, and correct me if, if I'm, I'm wrong, it, it, it almost feels like we're going to do this initially, perhaps to put ourselves on a certain map, and very quickly, they became such serious collectors. Mm. It wasn't just like they did this and then they, they stopped furnishing that room and showing off their treasures to people who would be impressed, but they actually became important figures in collecting. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I think you're absolutely right. The, 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 the initial impetus was the sort of the social status and, and, mm -hmm. the, and the, um, particularly in the post-war years where, where French furniture was, was mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the 18th century was becoming so, so fashionable, but it, but it really very rapidly progressed seriously but beyond that. And, and it really a, a deep 
intellectual engagement on on so many levels, which I think is what sets her and him apart from so many other collectors of their of their generation. It's it's a combination of the intellectual engagement, the staggering levels of quality throughout their collecting, and the dedication to to patronage and, and the public good. I think there are very few parallels to collectors in the last 50 or 60 years who, who have achieved all of those three at, at the level that they have. And she, in particular, lived so long that she really saw this sort of transition from, you know, just as French furniture and decorative arts and paintings and were becoming fashionable to the, the height of their fashionability to the sort of eclipse of their mm-hmm. fashionability and almost made it to the what I think we're entering, which is the sort of return of their fashionability after this long eclipse. But, you know, I think for many curators at the Met and for directors at the Met, like Philippe de Montebello, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he probably would think this, you know, for many years as this sort you know, as, as this sort of grand, you know, European masters from the Renaissance to the, or the 18th century, were eclipsed in their fashionability and desirability by modern and contemporary art. Mm. The Reitzmans absolutely remained stalwart collectors of this, and they were they were the force that kept the Met straightforward in their commitment because the because Jane Reitzman could be relied upon to when 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 a check needed to be written to buy, you know, something that most other trustees no longer cared all that mm-hmm. much about mm-hmm. she would do it i mean her interest in this never never waned ever and she was a real standard bearer wasn't she she was a standard bearer absolutely right to the end and i i love reading about you know the the chase of of them really looking for the very best that they could find not only the very best but perhaps something that was slightly unusual something slightly out that it was the best but it was it was the best for reasons beyond technical reasons or provenance or whatever there was something incredibly special about either the history of it yeah um, the maker of it. it it seemed that any number of things had to come together to make it i remember once writing a blog post years ago and saying i'd love to see what paintings the Reitzmans rejected to get even better insight into what intrigued them and why they purchased them. You know, what wasn't good enough? Yes. Well, I'm sure the Met has very good hidden files still on all those, <laughs> all those sorts of things that will mm. one day, one day emerge. I only knew her in her, her widowhood, mm. although that was, you know, 30 some years. So it's a lo- it was a long third act in her life but she you know she had very definite taste of her own and i mean it's one of i mean in fact it's it's the reason we called the christie's sale the private collection of jane wrightsman because certainly for the paintings and i think this is true for a fair amount of the decorative arts too but for the paintings it's absolutely true it's almost all things that she bought in her widowhood i mean in from the age of 70 until her, her her death when she was really buying for herself. I mean, mm. Charles Reitzman was gone. The great, famous, you know, the Vermeers and the Rubenses had gone to the Met. There was room in the apartment to 
buy new things and hang new things and it, what what we're selling really represents her personal taste in her in her you know the last third of her life can you tell me how it changed what what how do you see her evolution well i i'm going to speak yeah i'm going to speak entirely i mean my area is painting so i'm mm -hmm. going to really speak entirely to to that will can sort of address the the, the decorative arts and I, whether that changes to quite the same degree i don't know but when charles reisman was alive and when i think they were thinking very consciously about you know about the eventual gifts to the net it's a much grander scale there you know there are large scale i mean the, the famous you know rubens triple portrait of rubens and his wife and their child that you know that came from the rothschild collection the the great uh, georges latour the vermeer these are often quite grand public often quite not so much the vermeer but you know some of them are quite large scale statement mm -hmm. you know real statement pictures and and once Charles Wrightson was dead and they were, and the pictures were, were now installed largely in the Met. The things she kept that they had acquired earlier were almost invariably small, personal sort of domestic things. You know, the great tableau de mode by Jean-Francois de Troyes, the beautiful, the sexy, beautiful little, you know, Moliere-like interiors, mm -hmm. or the, or or uh, this uh, small-scale sketches, or the, the 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 you know the wonderful Domenico Tiepolo view of the gondolas arriving in Venice. I mean, or the 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 Canalettos which she had, which were small. I mean, these were the sort of things that she kept that they had bought. So more but intimate then, works. Yeah, and then she herself started to buy really 18th and early 19th century works also on a small scale, but almost invariably of almost invariably portraits, domestic, quite often small scale full length portraits showing people, aristocrats often in their in their home settings, surrounded by the the objects they own, by the, the decor of their homes, became a much more domestic, sort of intimate, personal thing that I think reflected the world that interested her and the a world that to some degree she herself now lived in because mm -hmm. she created this sort of comparable environment around herself. The apartment in those later years, as, as it always was, but I think particularly in the later years, was in itself a complete work of art because everything blended in so beautifully and that, that I loved the um, intimate and sort of salon style hang of, the, of these intimate scale paintings and the, the collecting of her furniture and decorative arts in, in that latter phase of her life is, is fascinating because it is it, it's almost like she was like as a collector was like an artist having a sort of a final phase of her collecting like an artist having a final stylistic phase mm -hmm. of his career and uh, and she definitely had it wasn't moving on in a in a complete sense because there there are there in the sale there are still things actually so that she bought in the 1950s so there's a sense yeah. of con continuity but there's a definite sense of a um of a development to to a more a different and more personal style from the very if you like the classic sort of house style of Jean Sen right. we haven't mentioned the influence of Stefan Boudin or Samuel and the very Two of the most uh, important decorators 
of exactly. the 20th century yeah. who became two of her experts. Yeah, who, who were an enormous influence in, in her life. But I think, again, like her other influences, they became as much partners and collaborators mm. as, as people who were telling her what to do. It was very much that, that they had fun together. And, and, and I, I'm sure she gave as much input as, 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 as they gave in decorating their houses. There's a wonderful phrase about when she started working with Stefan Boudin in, in the Palm Beach house, that she started Mario Antoinetting the house. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the, that late phase uh, following Charles's death, it's, it's a very, it's a calmer style. It's the, instead of the, um, the intricacies and the curves of the Louis XV style, there's, there's a more sober architectural look to many pieces of mahogany larger scale actually in, in contrast to the pictures which are going smaller mm. scale some of the furniture was actually going larger scale with um quite austere mahogany cabinets and and a real light motif which is fascinating and so bold is a, is a fantastically rich group of porphyry vases mm. um, which give this sort of sense of a roman grandeur to the house and go very well with the sober mahogany of the furniture she was buying. So she was creating slightly more sort of theatrical and less formal, but also very calm and controlled. It's just a beautiful balance. And, and, and as I say, a continuity from her early collecting, but a definite sort of sense of her final phase and her private phase late in her life. What was it like walking into 820 Fifth Avenue, that apartment that she uh, that you had mentioned, Will earlier, um, had been owned by Renee de Becker, a great um, European uh, collector and woman of, of taste and style. When it was time for you both to go in and start looking and cataloging and becoming as intimate with the objects as yeah, she had. Yeah. You just, I mean, when it was all complete, when when actually we, we started the actual cataloging process, it, it had been um, separated because, because many pieces, as is, as is well known, have also been kept by, mm. the, by the Met, which is, again, a fantastic aspect of her generosity. But when it was all intact and complete, you just didn't know where to look. It was, it was, an, it was an overwhelming um, impression of color and richness and, and layering. An aspect of her collecting which we haven't touched on, but I think was incredibly important throughout her life was her book collecting. She was very proudly a member of the Roxburgh Club, which is the most elite book collecting club in the world. I founded in, I think, the, the mid-18th century, and it's only ever allowed to have 40 members. So for an American lady to be a member of that is, is an extraordinary reflection of how seriously she immersed herself in that collecting world. And, and how seriously and, that club thought of her. Absolutely. I would think you're only going to get an, an invitation if what you're collecting is of, uh, deemed of sufficient importance. Absolutely. They would not suffer fools gladly. And, and, and certainly money wouldn't alone wouldn't gain you entry to that. To what that sort there. of books was she buying? You, you touched on what attracted her in terms of what she was buying and, and very often the as for so many collectors of the 18th century, it's the um, it's the fascination with provenance. Who owned? Who who was it commissioned for? Was this made for mm. 
the royal palace for the royal bedroom. And, and she was all, obviously all her life fascinated by history. So I think her, her book collecting was, 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 an, was another way to enter the, those worlds that she was collecting through her paintings and furniture because she would buy fascinating diaries and, and traveler's tales and, and, and uh, contemporary documents of, uh, and, and many pieces with royal bindings. So again, the, the connection to the, um, to the original owners. Mm. So they were, they were miniature pieces of history, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, she bought manuscripts as, a, as opposed to books. Like, for example, she had Marie Antoinette's Last Diary. Mm. which you know was opened in, in her in her I think at one point it was in her bedroom but with the the actual 18th century books they were generally 18th century books and they were often collected because they had been owned by important collectors and had great bindings mm -hmm. what yeah. what she really had which was really significant and it's been given by and large to the Morgan Library uh, upon her death is a, a very substantial collection a very rare and important um, 18th century bindings. So there was a, I, I mean, I, I think there was an interest in what was inside the bindings too, but, uh, but, but there is a decorative arts aspect to this mm -hmm. too, because they were, they were very often great bound, uh, tooled leather, great bound books yeah, and they came were really... from important collections. And they were such an important part of the mise-en-scene as well of the apartment, because right. they were, they, they they were presented as artworks in their own right. And, and when you walked into this great gallery with this enfilade of bookcases, they yep. were full of these bindings. You weren't seeing them from the spines, but they were, they were displayed from the front onwards with these yep. beautiful gilt coats of arms. So mm -hmm. that, that had an, uh, an overwhelming impact right from the start as right. soon as you entered the apartment. And I think the Morgan Library is doing a, a, an exhibition in which a, a, you know, a significant selection of them will be on view, probably for the one and only time. The other thing that I like to go back to something that, that you, you both have said, Alan and Will, this idea of the fascination of the history behind the objects. It's not just that it's an important table, it's what it represents almost I mean, in, in narrative terms. It's the craftsman, it's the person who owned it, it's where it used to sit, it's the really rich associations that are as important or seem to have been as important to her as as the quality. Yeah, very much so. And I think and I I mean I'm sure she felt that she she was sort of entering into the pantheon of collectors as a result of what she of what she assembled. And for me, one of the very telling moments when when we were cataloging the collection, and it shows the the depth of comprehensive quality of everything we were looking at, is that in a small little corridor outside her bedroom, there's there was a rather unassuming little table, which to most people's eyes would look like a just an elegant little two tier end table, which you'd put at the end of a sofa, mm -hmm. but you look at it more closely and then you turn it upside down and you see a brand with a crown and, and, and BV because it was actually made for Louis XVI's aunt, aunt for the Chateau de Bellevue uh, in one of the, one of the great um, and lavish commissions of furniture made in its time in the early 1780s. So even a little, what looked like a little occasional table 
just to put sort of put keys on as you went into the into her bedroom was was actually royal so i think that sort of is a very telling example of the, the depth of quality of her collecting and i was just wondering within all of these pieces mm. that you're, you're you're looking at you're cataloging you're becoming uh, familiar with uh, not that you weren't already but but new pieces things you're seeing mm -hmm. studying is there a piece however modest however let's say not a trophy that really stands out for you personally as, as something that says so much about her taste? Well, if he, I mean, a few of the things we're selling, uh, I would say, are trophies. They're, they're, mm. they're really wonderful things. Uh, one of the things that we're selling uh, uh, that, that I suppose isn't a trophy in a sense is a, a, a little painting, quite a small-scale bust-length portrait by Natier, the uh, Jean-Marc Natier, the great mid-18th century, portrait painter sort of a uh, uh, you know he's famous for painting very beautiful portraits of, of grand women often as deities you know hebe or venus or uh, uh, and this is a very direct portrait of well she becomes the marquise uh, de la ferte ambo but she's madame joffrin's daughter madame joffrin is the great saloniste of the of the middle of the 18th century and uh, this is her daughter who starts her own rival salon and it's beautiful, a very sensitive portrait. That's one of the early things that they bought. She, this was a thing that was bought with Charles Reitzman and that she bought in 1962 or three and kept her in, entire life right up to the end, always with her. I mean, Mrs. Reitzman did. And, you know, I think for her, it is in a sense what she aspired to be. I mean, it is, it yeah. is a depiction of, of a woman who became a sort of intellectual, organized a salon, entertained the great minds and the great artists of her day, uh, was immortalized by artists and, and collected herself great art. And for her, I think, uh, and was a woman of great style as well. So I think for her, this was a thing that you would never have asked her this, but she, I, it's the sort of thing she might have herself identified with. So for me, I think that seems a, a sort of an intimate possession. You could argue that she was the Madame Joffrin of her day, the great collector, yeah. East yeah. Salon. You know, she had great, she had great dinners. She she sort of knew everyone. She mixed up interesting people at her parties. I mean, she mm. was yeah, very much so. I'm going to choose quickly two two pieces, but I think they speak to this idea of the continuum of collectors. There's a fascinating cylinder bureau, very much part of that sober mahogany style in the sale. But what makes that really interesting is that it was acquired by basically the first American collector of 18th century French furniture, um, someone called Gouverneur Morris. Oh, who, yes. Yeah. Who wow. was in, he was Washington's ambassador in, 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 uh, in Paris during the revolution. He actually tried to save, uh, ironically, he was part of the Republican government of America, but he was actually in France, very pro-royalist, and he actually tried to save Marie Antoinette and Louis Serres and, uh, before they were um, guillotined. But he fell in love with the, the extraordinary quality of, of 18th century French furniture and, and made use of the opportunities in the revolution of buying great French furniture while he was there and going to the sales of various executed aristocrats. And he bought this cylinder bureau, which was shipped back to his house, Marisania. And, in the Bronx. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and 
survived in the family until it was sold by um, Christie's uh, by a member of the family in 1983. Uh, Mrs. Reitzman didn't buy it at that sale, but she bought it soon after. But I love, I love the idea of her, the great 20th century and 21st century collector of French furniture, having that link with essentially the first American collector of, of French furniture. Mm -hmm. I, think that, I think that's a, that's a wonderful um, connection to, to draw in the collection. One, some, one item which shows her sense of lightness and humour, but also connects her to one of the great style gurus and tastemakers of the 20th century, which was the, there's a pair of candelabra in the dining room, which have these wonderful toll pineapples. So very sort of amusing um, trompe-l'oeil effect in your, in your dining room of having these metal pineapples. But they were in the one of the most famous rooms of 20th century England, the, the yellow room in Avery Row of Nancy Lancaster. Oh. So again, a great, a great connection between between Jane Reitzman and, and, and another female tastemaker mm. of legendary repute. We sort of talked about her interest in you know things royal and which she you know absolutely had but she she sort of was interested in the history of things from a, a whole you know variety of perspectives so one of the things we're actually selling is a, a very very rare thing a full-length portrait by Francois Clouet who's one of the great and very very rare portrait painters of the renaissance of the French renaissance and it's a portrait of uh, Charles the Ninth, but it was it seems to have made been made for him to hang actually outside the bedroom of his mistress's chateau, where it remained for uh, until the middle of the nineteenth century when the mm -hmm. chateau was torn down. But uh, but you know so there there's this sort of fat, you know grand royal history, but with something like the the little odalisque by angra which is in the sale as well which is a tiny you know postcard size version of the grand odalisque from the louvre it was painted for a man gilbert who was angra's childhood best friend had been his his greatest childhood friend and he hadn't seen in many many years but they kept a lifelong correspondence and so this was a very very intimate personal thing painted you know uh, 15, 20 years after the Grand Odalisque as a gift for his, you know, his closest, I mean, he, he Angra himself said his mm -hmm. only true friend, uh, a man named Gilbert, and it remained in the Gilbert family by descent until Mrs. Reitzman bought it, you know, 10, not even 10 years ago. So there, there was a sort of a great interest and sensitivity to the, the history of these things, regardless of whether they were had grand royal history or much more, you know, sort of small, small personal history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a real connoisseur's picture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely wonderful. I mean, she was very, you know, we, we talk about these people she learned from and who influenced her, and, and they, they certainly were true. And with paintings, you know, from Ted Russo to Everett Fay to mm -hmm. John, uh, you know, John Pope Hennessy, who who was brought over, had been director of the V&A and was brought over by Mrs. Reitzman to head paintings at the Met, to Francis Watson, who knew a great deal about paintings too, to Keith Christensen, who's the current curator of European paintings at the Met. You know, she she sort of vetted things with all of them over the years. Right. But she absolutely knew what she was doing. I mean, when I was a very young, you know, gallery assistant in the 80s you know she would come into the gallery and you would show her something and she would 
tell you in 60 seconds that it, it was it was divine it was always divine whether she liked it or not it was divine <laughs> but it wasn't for her or it was divine send it around to the apartment this afternoon could you you of course did immediately send it around to the apartment and she would certainly ask Everett or ask uh, John Pope Hennessy or ask Keith what they thought about it but a cheap absolutely decided uh, you know uh, in on her own within a few minutes whether this was something she wanted or not i mean you knew within the day and uh it, it was very much her personal taste i think her confidence in her taste had been refined over these many years of learning but but certainly in her later years she knew exactly what she was doing on her own she didn't need anyone to tell her i love that trajectory <laughs> from from yeah. young sort of unformed to yeah, this connoisseur of such confidence yeah. and such knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the great pleasures of collecting is not so much the objects, but the uh, acquiring of knowledge about objects, the the understanding of how they were made, who made them, why they were made, where they sat, why they sat there. Yeah, she knew uh, everything. I mean, when when you were mentioning uh uh. uh you were mentioning the, the great catalogs that were done in the 60s of her collection. You know, Francis Watson said that he came to realize that that anything he told her about these things, she already knew. I mean, she she knew the objects that she owned top to bottom. She knew everything about them. There's a very charming, I mean, it, it indicates how early on this came. There's a very charming article about, about her, about Deb the Rights in, in Vogue, in, published in the early mid 50s mm. i mean or quite early on which says that uh, the, the, the 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 writer says something like um her mind was as well dressed as her body and this is when oh, she's great isn't that great i mean yeah. this is this is her mind was as well dressed as her body i mean this was a, a quote you know when she's maybe 30 years old she was a very clever woman i mean clearly from the beginning and while her knowledge of course grew and deepened and she, she she was, I think, a pretty sharp cookie from day one. What do you think her impact has been on American collecting, if, if any? I mean, I, I I know that obviously the the her many great donations to the Met, her great support of the Met, has had sort of um, uh, an you know os osmosis effect on on Americans walking through looking at these objects, but has she had an effect on American collecting at all? I think she certainly had an effect on, on you talked about the sort of, or I think it was Alan who talked about the sort of trajectory of taste mm. and fashion for French 18th century furniture. I think for that whole generation of society, ladies who were, who were creating sort of Versailles on Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue in the 80s and <laughs> 90s, she she was the the pinnacle that they all looked to, looked up to and aspired to. I think she was a, a huge inspiration to that generation. And what really excites me and fascinates me about this sale is that we will actually be able to tell her story to a whole new generation, who many of whom may not even have heard of her, even if they've gone into the Reitzman galleries in in the Met, they may not have known that. Reitzman was was actually a person, and mm. and so I'm 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 really excited to to spread that story to the world because I think 
with the huge swing towards contemporary art and the fact that in her latter years she was she was very private and, and was was not a, a, having a, a high profile life in New York and a lot of social that there's a there's a new generation that um, will I think it'll be an opportunity to 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 display the, the 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 sort of the magic of that type of collection that she represents so incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, in the '80s, of course, as, as Will said, in the '80s, she was the tastemaker that enormous numbers of wealthy East Side New Yorkers, you know, aspired to be and modeled themselves on. And so, what you now see are collections that were formed in the 80s that very much modeled themselves on on the taste that she espoused. And those collections, of course, in coming years will themselves be given to museums or or come up for, for sale. I mean, in that sense, she had, I think, um, you know, a, a very powerful influence during a certain period of time. And I think, as Will suggests, I think for a new generation of younger I mean, she hated, you know, she would have hated if you called her a socialite, but of course she was a socialite too. But for a younger group of of socially well-connected, prominent, particularly women who who are starting to collect, I think her, you know, her phil- the, the absolute generous philanthropic nature of the way she collected is 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 increasingly an influence. I mean, I think... I think there are a, a lot of young collectors who who admire and appreciate this sense that it's not just buying for yourself, but that there is a, a, a sort of a larger vision and a public service to certain kinds of collecting that I think she will be a, a real influence for as well. Will Stafford, Alan Wintermute, thank you both very much for coming onto the podcast and talking about Jane Reitzman and the forthcoming auction at Christie's. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Theate is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.